Austin, I know why you didn't share from Hebrews like you were planning on, because that goes right, what you just shared goes right along with um, what I'm going to be sharing here, and I'd like to share more with that maybe the next time I share, but um, the title of my message is called Separated Unto God, and you mentioned a lack of intention, and separation intertwines with that very well, and what you were talking about in, in James there. I think a lot of you know the, I'd like to start with the verse from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, those verses, a lot of us have probably memorized that in years past. And they're, they're rich and they're full of meaning. And in some circles, when you hear that verse being read, you, you might kind of cringe because you know what's coming, the emphasis on, and be not conformed. And you think, well, it's going to be another message on what we shouldn't do. And, and once again, you, you know, you, maybe you feel restricted and with thoughts of, of rules and that sort of thing. But I, I really sincerely hope that at the close of this message, and it's the way it looks like it's going to be several messages, it's going to lead into another one and maybe another one, I'm not sure. But at the close of this message, I hope that that's not what you're feeling, but that you'll be able to understand more fully why, as well as desire personally to live a life separated unto God. So to give you a brief overview of what I'll be talking about as far as separation, like I said, it's going to take several. But I'd like to break it down into four different areas. First, I'd like to look at the Old Testament teaching on separation. And then secondly, I'd like to look at what Jesus taught us about separation. And then I'd like to also look at what the apostles taught and how they reemphasized Jesus' teaching. And then I'd like to intermingle into that and bring out how the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected on this subject of separation and how they support each other on, on the teaching of separation. And then fourth, I'd like to look at the more uh, practical areas for us today and separate, you know, is we, asked the, we could ask the question, is separation for us today? And how does it apply to us? Is it necessary for us? Um, in preparation, as I was kind of preparing for this, I uh, got this book here. The last time we were at Carmen's parents, Sam told me, he said, uh, he said, I've got a whole bookshelf of books downstairs. And he said, just go down and help yourself to whatever you want. So there was, um, he gave me a big tote. You know, bit or whatever. So I went down and I filled the toad up with books, and and this was one book that I got, and it's called "Separated Unto God." It's it's not the first edition; it's the second edition. There's been a number since then, but uh, this book was written by J. C. Wanger, uh, John C. Wanger, in 1951, and I'm just curious, Terry and Maggie, have you all ever heard J. C. Wanger speak? You'd be the only ones probably that. Okay, Maggie, you have. 
Mother, have you heard him speak at all? Okay. Okay, so, but anyhow, um, this book was written seven, about 70 years ago. And uh, it's, it's really an interesting book. In, in 1948, I was just reading a little bit about the, the history of it and that sort of thing. A, resol a resolution was, was passed by the special sessions. I'm not sure what the special, special session was, but, but it was passed by the special sessions of the Mennonite Central Conference, or it's referred to as MCC of Goshen, Indiana. And they said that they need a more comprehensive treatment and exposition of the doctrine of nonconformity and how it applies to us today. So they appointed J.C. Wanger to write this book. And at the time, J.C. Wanger, he was a professor, I guess you'd call him, at Goshen College. And so they gave him leave to do the required study that he needed to do to complete that book. And so as I, as I read through, I read through most of the book and I found the book was full of um, biblical application as well as history on the what, and, and also it tackled the question of, of why we need to be separated. And like I said, even though it was seven, it's, it's, it's an old book, but there's a lot of really applicable stuff in there. So that, that's, um, I, I did, pretty much all I'm going to say about that book for right now. But in the introduction, there's another, I was reading that, Paul Erb wrote, and I'm going to quote a few quotes from him, to be a Christian is not only to say, but to do. The one who is separated unto God must in logical consequence be separated from the world. Then also he said, separation affects every phase of our life. And then one more quote yet, the faith of a Christian must express itself in a life that is different because it is ordered by the word of God. The faith of a Christian must express itself in a life that is different because it is ordered by the word of God. Okay, so I don't know if you caught it or not, but I used another word different from separation or just in so far this morning. I've used the word nonconformity and conformity, and conformed, use that once already, and I think it might be good to explain how conformity and nonconformity is so, you know, just really closely connected to being separated. So according to the dictionary, to conform is to become similar in form or character, to act in accordance with prevailing modes or customs. I think most of us understand how there's two separate bodies of, or classes of people. You have the people of God on one hand and the people of the world on the other hand. And there's, there's a distinct separation between those people. Uh, there's, you know, there's a separation in how we think and how we live, and at least there, there should be if there's not. And then Daniel Kaufman, he's the, he's the author of Doctrines of the Bible. He wrote that the dividing line between the Christian and the worldling, these, these two different groups of people, the dividing line between the Christian and the worldling is where the choice is made. And that kind of goes back to what Austin was talking, is where your intention is. You have this dividing line, and that's the choice between the worldling and the, and the Christian. <clears throat> it's is between 
the Christian and the worldling is where the choice is made between walking after the spirit and walking after the flesh. So the, the, these two opposing uh, distinct different things right here, ideologies, you know, the, the dividing line is, is the choice between walking after the spirit and walking after the flesh. Because the world is ruled, it's ruled by all sorts of our fleshly imaginations and sin, while God's kingdom is ruled by, it's ruled by godliness and righteousness, and there's that distinct separation. So nonconformity is a choice that we make to stay unspotted from the flesh, and that was in, in James there, and to be separated from the world. That, that's a choice that we make. And so I want to illustrate a little bit of what separation and conformity means with an object lesson, and it's mainly going to be focusing on conformity. So we'll put this up here to just kind of keep everything dry. <clears throat> okay, so this water here, um, this represents the ideology of the world. So I'm going to pour that into this basin here. Okay, so that's the ideology ideologies of the world. This is represents the world that's going to be floating on the, the things, the thoughts of the world. And then um, this is going to represent the Christian right here. And as you can see, the world and the Christian are very distinct. This is round. This is flat. If I lay this on top of the world, it would hold still. You know, it, it's very separate from the world right there. But... Um, if I place this water, the Christian, into the water right here, it's going to become, it's going to soak up the ideology of the world. And if I pull it out, this piece of paper is actually a different one. It's been soaking in, this Christian's been soaking in the world for quite a while. Uh, it actually, this paper now is no longer flat and it's no longer separate from the world like this one right here. It's, it's limp and it conforms to the world and, and the world and everything around it. You know, I could, um, I could take and place a little bit of this paper in the water like this right here and it can get a little bit wet. Let me just hold it in there for a little bit. It's not too bad to just dip a, a if I just put a corner of the paper of, of myself into the world, I'll, I'll conform, it conforms just a little bit right there to the world. But oftentimes, you know, we, we dip a little bit into the world and we can lay on here and we say, well, it's, a, it's okay. You know, I'm not going to conform to the world. 
But then before we know it, the ball, the world rolls over and the whole paper gets wet again. And before we know it, we're in the ideology of the world itself and we've conformed and we're conforming to the world. And it starts by just dipping a little bit, a little bit here, you know, a corner of the paper into the water. And before we know it, we're, we're into the, the world and conforming to its ways. As Christians, we need to be vigilant and keeping ourselves separate by not dipping and immersing ourselves into the world and thereby conforming to it. You know, this concept of nonconformity and separation, it's not a new thought. It began with God. He established a covenant in the first parts of Genesis with four men, specifically uh, that covenant was established with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they each in turn lived their, their lives separated unto God. And it's recorded how, each, how for each of them God made a covenant with, each, with them. A covenant is a promise that is made between two people. It describes the relationship that God had with his sons and his daughters. In Genesis 6, verse 18, God said to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with thee. And then we know that after the flood, God renewed his covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, verses 9 to 17, by giving them, he gave them the sign of a rainbow to remind them of his covenant. And then centuries went on, and God now told Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, I will make my covenant between me and thee. And this time, God asked Abraham and his descendants that they fought, and his descendants that followed, to circumcise every male as a representation and a sign of the relationship and the covenant that God had with Abraham and his people. He asked them to, you know, to do that circumcision. Then, with Isaac and Jacob, Scripture is not real clear when God renewed his covenant with them. But in Genesis 17, verse 19, God said, I will establish my covenant with him, referring to Isaac, for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. And then in Exodus 2, verses 24, it tells us that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. <clears throat> So remember that nonconformity and separation all began <clears throat> with God establishing a covenant. It all began with God establishing a covenant, and then that's how nonconformity and separation began with the, these groups of people. With these men, God had made a covenant, and by faith, we also believe that God is keeping his covenant with us as adopted heirs of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 7 to 9 ties us today as believers back with Abraham and the covenant he made with God. And then the Apostle Paul then goes on to explain why the law was given to the covenant keepers of the Old Testament laws. If you want to read that, go back, go back to Galatians 3 and read Galatians 3 again and it talks about the covenant that he made with us and, and also why it was given. And then the Apostle Paul tells how Jesus Christ rescued us from the Old Testament law 
and that the new covenant is kept through our faith in Jesus. And so now we can be also covenant keepers. And then Paul summarized his thoughts in verse 26 and 29. And I'd like to turn there and read that if you want to turn your Bibles to Galatians 3, verses 7 and 9. Okay, Uh, verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be in Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So God... He's continued his promise and his covenant to Abraham through one of his descendants, which is Jesus, born of Mary. So we now, through faith in Jesus, we're part of the covenant. And as covenant members, we also are called to be separated as Old Testament saints were and the nation of Israel was or is. And this separation from the surrounding ideology of the heathen nations, it played a big part in their covenant agreement with God. You know, God, he expected it, and he even demanded their separation as part of their covenant agreement. Separation under the old covenant meant that the Israelites were obligated to keep certain practices. They alone were God's chosen people, his special treasure, and the ones that he had made a covenant with, the the people of Israel were that people. Their first and their most obvious obligation was to keep God's laws that he had set forth in the Ten Commandments, as well as to keep the various moral laws already established in Leviticus. And I'm not going to go back and look at all the laws that that they were expected to follow, but I'd like to pull out from Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, the incident where where Jesus was asked by the, I think it was a rich young ruler, which is the greatest commandment or the law? And so Jesus, he quoted Leviticus 19.8, which summarized the moral law of God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then he also quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which summarized the 10 commandments of God. Love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And Jesus said that, all God's commandments were based on these two commandments. So every type of behavior by the Israelites that had even the slightest hint or tendency towards sin, it was to be strictly avoided. The Israelites, they, um, they, they understood and they recognized what they owned, that it was not their own. It was, it was the Lord's. It was, the, it was the Lord of the, 
the heavens, the earth, and everything on the earth. Because Moses, he stated in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, Behold, unto Jehovah God belongeth heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is therein. And that they were expected, and, and they, I think they wanted to, that there, there were certain tithes that were to be kept daily. There was feasts that were to be kept. There was offerings that were to be given. There was weekly Sabbaths to be kept, as well as the sabbatical year every seven years. And then the year of Jubilee was to be observed every 50 years. The poor of the land were to be recognized and given opportunity to glean the fields. They were also prohibited from charging interest to their brothers. And there was a whole series of sacrifices that, that, that were designated to um, stimulate, stimulate their faith and give them access to God and his forgiveness. And human sacrifice was strictly forbidden, and it was punished by death. The children of Israel were to be separated from their neighbors also in the food that they ate. There, were, there was designated clean animals and unclean animals that were to be refused. That's in Leviticus 11. Their dress also was to be distinct in how it was made with certain fringes and ornaments, Numbers 15, 37, and 40, as well as there was a distinction between the genders and what they wore. All, all these things, you know, was things that separated them from the, from the other countries that were around them. And the list could go on, but as you can see, these people, they were different and they were separated from all the surrounding nations as God intended it to be so. And, and why, why did he intend it to be that way? If you turn to Leviticus chapter 22 through 26, I'm going to read from the word itself why they were this way. Leviticus chapter 20, <clears throat> verse 22 to 26. This is why they were separate. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments, and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein spew you not out. And ye shall not walk in the manner of the nations which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. But I have said unto you, ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I, the, I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. Ye shall therefore put difference between clean beasts and unclean, and between unclean fowl and clean, and ye shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and has severed you, severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. <clears throat> So we read there in the last verse, in verse 26, God had separated and severed them from other people so that they could be holy as the Lord himself was holy. The reason why we're supposed to be separated is so that we can be holy as the Lord himself is holy. So all these ceremonial regulations, whether it pertained to the food that they ate, the salve clothes that they wore, how they harvested their crops or the sacrifices they performed, those things in and of themselves didn't make them holy, just like 
our works that we do today don't make us righteous before God. And God, he desires a relationship with us and an unwavering faith on our part. And I feel like this is really important for us to understand. The things that the children of Israel did, were they were primarily done to symbolize that Israel was a holy nation, that they belonged to God, that they were dedicated to a life of holiness, of faith and obedience. When the ceremonies, which were intended to be a beautiful symbol, were turned into formalism and became ends to themselves, you know, God, he despised that type of thing, that type of worship, and he protested through many of his prophets. And we could look at, I guess, different prophets, but I'm going to look at Amos's words that he wrote, if one of God's prophets. If you want to turn to Amos chapter 5, and I'll read uh, verses 21 to 27, and we'll see how God, how, how the thing that was supposed to be a beautiful thing was turned into something that God despised. Amos chapter 5, verse 21, to the end of the chapter. I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy song, for I will not hear the melody of thy vows. But let judgment run down as water and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Molech and Chion, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. <clears throat> so the question is, how does God feel about our actions today? <clears throat> today, you know, we've been redeemed from the law of the Old Testament with its ceremonialism and its externalism by the Son of God, by, by Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed. Jesus used the Old Testament as a basis for what he taught, and today we have a new covenant that was promised even in the Old Covenant. The, the, the new covenant by Jesus is not the Old Covenant cleaned up a little bit, but it's a genuine new covenant. It, it's a new covenant to, to all of us. The only place that the word new covenant is used in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Well, I'd like to turn to read and read that where it talks about the new, the new covenant in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, and I'll read 31 to 34. <clears throat> Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in, that, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. That's talking about the old covenant. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, 
I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the, of them until the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. <clears throat> Those verses if you're familiar with the New Testament, they, they sound familiar. You'll find the same terminology in Hebrews 8.10 and in Hebrews 12.24, as well as Matthew 26, verse 28, and Luke 22, verse 20, where Jesus refers to the blood as part of the New Testament or the New Covenant. In this new covenant, Jesus, he desires a spiritual relationship with us where holiness and love reigns in our hearts, where we truly know God, as it says here in verse 34, for they shall all know me. So as we live our lives righteously and separated unto God, it's important, I think, that we recognize that this in and of itself doesn't garner us divine favor, but rather it punctuates and I think it highlights our spiritual relationship and condition with God himself. In a way, how we live our lives, it symbolizes who we are. <clears throat> so the next time I share, I'd like to share on how we as members of the new covenant are called to be covenant keepers in the New Testament, and how, as covenant keepers, we're separated unto God.